Now, the Duke of Edinburgh, um, Prince Philip, uh, the husband to the Queen, died last year, didn't he? At the age of, I think, 99. Now, I don't know if you watched the funeral in full, the whole funeral. Uh, I only saw parts of it. It felt a bit long. Uh, And the part that stood out for me was when they read the long titles that the Duke of Edinburgh held during his life on earth. And they're amazing titles, aren't they? I don't know if you remember them, but here are some of the titles. Uh, Prince Philip was the royal knight of the most noble order of the Gata, the extra knight of the most ancient and most noble order of the Thistle, the knight of the Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order, the Lord of Our Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, the Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom, and the list just kept on going. It was a long list. Now, <laughs> I've seen by some of the reactions, we may not take those awards seriously, right? But it is obvious that these awards, these titles, these ranks, meant something to the Duke and the Queen. They must have done. Because that is why she gave them to him. And that is why they were read out at his funeral. I mean, you only read out your funeral important things about a person's life. And these were key to his life. They were important to him. And the truth, of, the truth is that all of us, right, not just members of the royal family, want to be top of the pile. Right? None of us want to be average Joe blogs, do we? From the moment we are born, uh, we were born, we've had the desire to be first in everything. We fight over toys, don't we? We want that last bowl of cereal in the house. Right? We want to be first in the classroom. We want to be the prettiest girl in the school. We want to have that wonderful promotion ahead of everyone at work, you know, head of departments and all that. We want to live in the best house. We want everyone's attention. We want to be the best, the most powerful, the best known, and the most loved, regardless of where we are. And it is true that this inner impulse to be the best, right, to be number one, to be ranked first has produced some good things in the world. We have to confess that, don't we? In fact, it's behind the economic paradigm of the invisible hand. You know, as we pursue to be number one, everybody pursues to be number one, everything in society should improve. And we have to admit, insofar as the economic system works and has produced prosperity, that there's some truth in, there's some benefits to pursuing to be number one. In fact, many of the great accomplishments in politics, sports, entertainment, science, and technology have come by people who are driven to be the greatest, to be the best. The problem is that this desire to be first in everything, as you know, is not innocent. It's not innocent. It is part of that ancient desire since Eden to be the first. What I mean by that is this desire to be equal to God. When God created Adam and Eve, he actually created them with the potential to grow in greatness. And the reason he did that uh, was not so that as they grow in greatness, they would promote themselves, 
But as they grow in greatness, they would promote God's greatness in the world. But as you know from the story of Genesis, our first parents, Adam and Eve, listened to the lies of the serpent in the, in, in the garden. And he said to them, you'll be number one, just like God. You'll be equal to God if you disobey God. And so what they did is they swapped living for the glory of God, living for God as the number one, and they started living equal to God. They, dis- they swapped, if you like, they decided we should be the number one in life, not God. And now all of us, their descendants, enter this world with this fallen nature that craves and chases to be number one in everything instead of God being number one. But we learned this morning, didn't we, that there is only one person who is human and he is God at the same time. And it is not you and I. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we learned in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the first part of that. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. And we learned that Christ is God made visible to us. And so this desire that we have to be supreme, to be ranked first over everything, actually puts you and I on a collision course with Christ. If you are living to be the greatest, you are, you are headed for a collision with Christ himself. Because Christ is the greatest. Christ, he's supreme. And that is what the second part of verse 15 is teaching us. The second part of verse 15 says, Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And what that means is that Christ is supreme. He's supreme. He's the first. Right? And just this evening, I just want to share with you two truths we learn here about the, this verse is teaching us about the supremacy of of Christ, and it is in your outline. The first truth is that Christ, this verse is teaching us that Christ is supreme over all things. Christ is supreme over all things. In 2013, um, a Time magazine produced the ranking of the top 100 most significant figures in history, right? And the method they used was very interesting. They said this, when we set out to rank the significance of historical figures, we decided not to approach the project the way historians usually do it. They do it through a principled assessment of their individual achievements. Instead, what we did is we evaluated each person by aggregating millions of traces of opinions into a computational data-centric analysis. We ranked historical figures just as Google ranks web pages by integrating a diverse set of measurement about their reputation into a single consensus value. Wow, you have to be a statistician to make sense of what they're saying. The point is they did a lot of data crunching, right? And after all the data crunching, they concluded that Christ is the number one most significant person in all history. They concluded he's superior to all of us. I think they could have saved themselves some money by simply looking up Colossians 1, verse 15. Because it tells us, doesn't it? Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
Paul is saying Christ ranks first in all creation. He is the firstborn of all creation. What does Paul mean by this phrase, by the way, firstborn? It's a strange phrase, isn't it? Well, first of all, we need to be clear what it does not mean. Right? You know, Paul is not saying what the Jehovah's Witnesses like to say when they excitedly knock on the door on a very busy Saturday morning. Right? Uh, they, they want to tell us some of their news. Well, when they read this verse as saying Christ is the first person to be created by God. In other words, they read it as, as an ordinary English word and without any context. Now, of course, we normally associate the term firstborn with birth, don't we? Uh, so I can say, you know, my daughter here, Abigail, she's the firstborn child of our family, and as it turns out, the only child in our family, right? So you can use firstborn like that. And even Christ in the Word of God sometimes is referred to as a firstborn in that way. The Gospel of Luke refers to Christ as what? The firstborn of son of Mary, Luke 2, verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We are familiar with that usage of that term referring to Christ. But we know Paul is using firstborn here in a very different sense. Why do I say that? Because of how he uses it later in verse 18. Look at verse 18. He uses this phrase again. Speaking of Christ, he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. And look at that term again. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything it might be preeminent. Is Paul saying in verse 18 that Christ is the first person to rise from the dead? No. In both verse 15 and verse 18, Paul is using firstborn to mean first rank. Christ ranks first in verse 15 in the old creation. So verse 15 about Christ ranking in the old creation. A world ravaged by sin. Verse 18, which we're looking forward to studying, is, is Christ ranking first in the new creation. The new world that Christ has ushered in as the head of a new humanity. He is our second Adam. That's what verse 18 is all about. We'll look at that verse in the future. For now, the point I just want to make is that the point I want us to see that Paul here is using firstborn really to mean first rank. Paul is saying Christ ranks first over all creation. And it's interesting enough, actually, that if you have the NIV or the New King James Version, they translate the original Greek in that sense. The NIV, for example, says Christ is the firstborn over all creation. And the point they're drawing out is that what Paul is talking about is that Christ is supreme over all things. He ranks higher than anything else that exists. Now this truth that Christ is first over all things should still perplex us. I hope when you hear that Christ is ranked first over all creation, it should still perplex you. It should still surprise you like, okay. Wow. I mean, we learned this morning that in the first part of verse 15, that he teaches us that Christ is God. That's what we learned this morning. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Is God made visible, right? 
And so we should be surprised then to read Christ as the firstborn over all creation, in the sense that he's being ranked alongside creation. Why? Well, because we cannot say the teacher ranks first in our class because she's not a pupil, right? If we are ranking pupils in the class, we can't include the teacher. So we must ask ourselves the question, how then is it possible that Christ can be ranked first when Paul has already told us Christ is God? And of course, if you are here this morning, you already know the answer to that, don't you? The answer, of course, is that Christ ranks first because he is actually both God and man. Christ in his divine nature as God is over and above all creation. But in his humanity, Christ is within creation. Christ is born in creation. This is why he's numbered a man creation. This is why the ranking works, because Christ as a man is a creation of God. And yet Christ is fully God. The divine Christ created the human Christ. That's the mystery of the incarnation. And it is because Christ is God, that is why he ranks first above all creation. And that's why as we read on to verse 16, verse 16 starts with a very important word, isn't it? A connecting word the teachers will recognize that. For, verse 15 is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Because, for, by Christ, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We'll look at that verse in detail next week. The point is that, point verse 16 is explaining the reason why Christ, though born as a man, ranks first among us. Christ is supreme over creation because he's God our creator. Verse 16 and the first part of verse 15. Everything has a signature of Christ written on it. He is the author of creation. So we have come full circle, haven't we? Right? The full circle is this. The divinity of Christ is crucial in his position as ranking first. If Christ is not divine, he can't rank first in creation. It, but the humanity of Christ is what gets him to be ranked within creation. His humanity is what allows him to be ranked among us. In other words, amazingly, as we go through this, we're going to see it very clearly. Paul is going to keep coming back to a truth that we've already seen this morning. He is now demonstrating in the second paragraph. He's going to demonstrate the, the next five truths about Christ. And it is this, isn't it? He's emphasizing throughout here the two natures of Christ. Christ is supreme overall because he's 100% God. That's why he ranks first. And he ranks, he's ranked because he's 100% man. And this truth puts Christ in the league of his own, isn't it? He is the holy God of heaven and the humble man who willingly drank the wrath of God on that cross for us. Christ is the great I am. 
and the simple servant. The divine shepherd and the spotless human lamb. He is the author of life that died and rose again. That's the wonder of Christ. And of course, this raises a question, doesn't it? What are we to do with this truth that Christ ranks first over all things? What do we do with this truth that Christ is supreme over all things? Why is Paul telling this to the Colossians? Well, two reasons, I think. First of all, Paul wants all followers of Christ, especially uh, these new believers at Colossae, to always remember that Christ has no rivals in this world. Christ has no competition. As the mathematician Blaise Pascal said, Christ is the center of everything and the object of everything. And he who does not know Christ knows nothing of the order of the world and nothing of himself. Christ is in the league of his own. And we see the proof of this simply by looking at world history. Over the last 2,000 years since Christ walked this planet. When we look back in history, what do we see? Well, we see empires rise and we see empires fall. We see one nation growing power only to be replaced by another nation. In the last 100 years alone, we've seen Britain declining from ruling over a quarter of the world to barely now holding this small island together. Hitler once declared the establishment of the German Reich that would last for a thousand years. It's not here. Mussolini said he would restart the calendar to begin with his reign. And both of them are now remembered only in shame. You know, the USA was once more powerful than the world put together. Now it's a declining power. And his citizens live in fear of Islamic terrorism. Trump promised to make America great again. Today the U.S. cannot contain a resurgent Russia. That's world empires. They rise and they fall. And yet against all such self-appointed powerful empires and leaders stands one gigantic figure. The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can put together all the armies that have ever matched, all the powerful forces ever assembled by man, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the presidents and kings that have ever ruled. We could combine them, put them together, and none of them have affected the life of mankind as powerfully as the life of Christ. And this is not by accident. Christ towers over human history because Christ is supreme over all things. Christ has no rivals. And Paul has put this truth here for the Colossians, new believers, challenged by so many ideas there in the Lycus Valley. And he says, remember Christ, supreme over all things. As I said this morning, Christ is not one of the 40 prophets of Islam. He's not one of Hindu's 350 30 million gods. He's not Christ the Great. Christ is supreme. He stands all in the category of one. 
And Paul says, no matter what's going on in your life, remember who you worship. It is Christ, supreme over all things. That's the first thing. The second thing I think Paul wants the Colossians to do with this truth is that he wants them to exalt this Christ. He wants them to put Christ first above all things. So treat Christ, that is to say, not because we can't add glory to Christ really, but we can treat Christ with the honor and worship and praise and glory that he deserves. You see, because Christ is supreme over all things, beloved, I must not compete against him in my life. The supremacy of Christ must be the death of my idolatry. And yet the sad truth is that even though we have a new heart in Christ, we remember we are still work in progress. That's sanctification, isn't it? And so there is still a part of us that craves to be supreme. We want to be number one at home. We do. Is that not the reason we argue with our spouses, our children, and our siblings? We demand their respect. And if they don't bow to us, we, we are at war with them. We want to be number one at work. We w- Just watch the boss take away a few of our privileges and all hell breaks loose, literally. Gossip attack in windows and dissatisfaction with work. What's going on there? We want to be number one. And of course, many problems at work start because there are people at work that think they're number one. And they make life difficult for us. But we also want to be number one at work. We want to be number one not just at home, at work, but at church. You know, as I thought about this truth, it always puzzles me how much I must fight myself not to be the center of the church. Not to be the center of the church that Christ purchased with his own blood, not mine. I'm always amazed how hard it is to surrender in this area for myself. Beloved, we live in a self-absorbed age. And I only need to look at my own heart to know how easy it is to, be, to want to be in charge, to be the most important. It has always been the bent of my own heart to want to be first, to protect my life and to control people and circumstances. I speak of me, but I'm sure you are also the same if you look at your heart closely. That's the bent of every human heart since Eden. Oh, what what vile sin lies in our hearts. And is this not the reason why many of us struggle to confess our sins to other believers? Why is it so hard (laughs) to get people to confess their sins? To share their struggles? Why do we struggle with that? Well, we struggle with that because, you see, it damages our reputation of being number one. We have an insatiable desire, you see, not just to be number one, but to be seen to be number one. To be seen to be the most godly, perfect Christian. And so confessing our struggles, confessing our sins, is very hard. 
It's very hard for all of us. Is this not the reason why our churches today are filled with talk of individual rights and church hurt and strong push to make church comfortable for us? Many of our churches, you see, are full of people so full of ourselves that there is simply no room for God and His church. We all have this bent of just me, myself, and I. But Paul is reminding us, yes, in the beloved, Christ is supreme over all things. And nothing must compete in our lives against him. This truth must be the death of idolatry in every area of your life. You know, as I've often encouraged you, you must think of your life as a number. Christ is represented by the number one. And we can represent the rest of life by adding zeros for each blessings we receive from God. A good church, perhaps, we add a zero there, don't we? So it becomes ten, right? A good education, we add another zero. We have a hundred. And we can go on adding many blessings. We may end up with a trillion of earthly blessings the Lord has given us. But what happens if we remove the number one at the beginning? What happens? You just get a bunch of zeros. Some of you have heard this illustration 50 times. You're like, sure, move on now. Give us a fresh one. I think it works, doesn't it, sister? It works. The point here is this. No matter how many zeros, beloved, you manage to accumulate, when you don't have Christ as your number one, when you are not putting him supreme as he deserves, your life is worthless. And so today, beloved, resolve, resolve to surrender to Christ. Give him the supremacy that he deserves. He's your savior, but come to him afresh. Christ is already supreme over all things. You must therefore treat him as such. Give him first place in your family. First place in your marriage. First place in your work. First place in your ministry, beloved. Especially as shepherd in the church, Christ must be first, not ourselves. Give him first place in how you think. How you laugh, yes. You can laugh in a godly way. Give Christ first place in how you laugh. Give him first place in how you talk. Give Christ first place in how you read, how you spend your time. And for me, I need to hear this, how I eat. We must give him first place. First place in how we use our social media. First place in how we watch which film we are watching, which which game we are playing, which songs we are listening to. You must give Christ first place. Let us exhort Christ in everything we do. And that means repenting of any area of your life where you're not putting Christ first. Because Christ, you see, is supreme over all things. And if you are a believer, you know you must give Christ well, the honor he deserves for his supremacy. That's the first truth we learn here. The second truth, and I'll, be, I'll move quickly on the second truth. The second truth this passage is also teaching us is not only that Christ is supreme over all things, it is teaching us that Christ is supreme for his people. Now, I don't mean to bash uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, but 
When, when I had those long list of titles that the Duke, when they read out, the thing that entered my mind was like, who are these titles for? They are only for the Duke. How do these titles benefit the average Joe on the street who's watching this? Well, the answer is obvious, nothing. The Duke of Edinburgh did not put food on my plate as far as I know. Uh, his titles did not make me comfortable in times of trouble. They were not good to us. I don't mean that as a dig at him, they're just that his titles were for himself. And as I thought about that, I thought, wow, what a supreme contrast our Lord Jesus Christ is. Because Christ, you see, is supreme, not for himself, is supreme Lord for all of us who trust in him. Where did I get that? Well, I got that from verse 15. The second part is the image of the invisible God. That's the first part. The second part, the firstborn of all creation. And the thing you need to know about this title, firstborn, is that it is fundamentally an Old Testament title. It is a title that expresses the status of God's promised Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ, as supreme. And the go-to passage of this, of course, is Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89, verse 27 says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of the earth. What you need to know about those, that, that verse is that these words were spoken to celebrate the kingship of David as a special gift from God of his unfailing love to his chosen people Israel in the Old Testament. King David was the firstborn, you see, because he embodied the people of Israel whom God had appointed as his firstborn. By the way, the title of firstborn is applied to Israel as his own special people. But you see, King David never fulfilled the promises of Psalm 89, verse 27. He was never the highest in his lifetime of the kings of the earth, and indeed he really was never meant to be in an actual sense. Because the prophecy concerning David, you see, was pointing forward to the son of David, one who would come and sit on David's throne. Christ Jesus, the true king of Israel, the true descendant of David. Christ, of course, is the son of David. is a, a true firstborn according to his humanity, isn't it? And God has appointed him as a firstborn, as a Christ, the true Messiah of Israel. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ has come to establish a new covenant with us. So that regardless of a new race, Regardless of our race or nationality, if we are truly trusting in Christ, the King of Israel is our Messiah as well. He is our supreme. He is our sovereign. And this is the key point here. The key point is this, you see. Christ has chosen to be ranked first in everything, to be supreme over everything, not for his benefit, but because he is the Messiah of his People. Christ is supreme for his chosen people, the church. And throughout this letter, Paul uses, doesn't he, an important phrase 
when talking about our life in Christ. He says in verse 2 that we are in Christ. He says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. In verse 4, what does he say? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. In verse 28, he's going to go on to say, we'll look at this in the future. Him we proclaim, that is Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may do what? We may present everyone mature in where? In Christ. In Christ. With Christ. Same meaning. And the meaning is the same. It is this. We are in the firstborn. Christ is not only supreme over us, Christ is supreme for us. Christ as our firstborn, as our Messiah, exercises his power as our supreme over all things for our benefit. The us is all true followers of Christ. If you are in the Messiah, you share in the rule of the firstborn. Christ is supreme for you because your life is now hidden in Christ. And, you know, this truth is one of the key messages of Colossians. If you're trusting in Christ, you are in Christ. Sermon number two, isn't it? Which looked at, which which was sermon number two. And what we said then is that the story of Christ is now your story. The life of Christ is now your life if you're in Christ. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His ascension is your ascension. His session is your session. His glorification is your glorification. His second coming, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, will be your second coming. His rule in the new heavens and new earth is your rule. We will reign with Christ, the Bible says. Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. In God. And so Christ being supreme is great news for us, isn't it? You are on the winning team with Christ. Team supreme. That's the team we are on. And Paul is saying to the Colossians, look, do not be discouraged. Beloved, are you being tempted to switch sides? Do not switch sides. Keep going in Christ. You're already on the winning side. Our team is like an infinite new app. Why would you want to switch? If you are truly converted, beloved, no matter what you are facing in life, you will endure because our Lord Jesus Christ is supreme for you. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Christ is supreme over all things and is supreme for his people. Now, I just want to end by saying... I know hearing this truth is easy, but living it is difficult. It is hard to believe Christ is supreme for us when we are going through chronic chronic illness. It is hard to believe Christ is supreme for us when we are praying for God to give us a job or to provide for us in some way, some need we desperate have, and it's not happening. It is hard to believe that Christ is supreme for us when our earnest prayers for our family members and our friends seems not to be answered by God. But beloved, as we said this morning, Christ is not just God. Christ is your God. 
And Paul here is saying Christ is not just supreme. Christ is God made visible for us to be supreme for us. Christ is our firstborn. Christ is telling us in this word of God that he has come to be supreme for us. He died, rose, and ascended into glory, not for himself, but for us. The question for you this evening is very simple. It's the same question for me. The question is this. Whose report will you believe? Will you believe the report of your feelings which constantly change? Or will you believe the living word of God here? I just want to end by saying, you know, I just want you to imagine. If you truly believe that Christ is supreme for you, how would your life look, your life look like every day? I think it would mean the end of glory and We are all searching since Eden to be supreme in many things. More money, better family, better church, better reputation, better ministries, better beauty. The passage says, if you are in Christ... You already have it all in Christ, our supreme. Stop searching for what you already have. You know, sometimes at home, and I'm diverting, I've run over my time. But the point is this. Sometimes at home, it happens, I'm looking for my glasses. I know, it's worrying because it's happening now. But I'm actually wearing them. <laughs> I'm like, where are my glasses? Oh, they're here. And that, we live like that. We have what we need in Christ, but we are like me when I'm silly, like looking for glasses. The passage says, if you're in Christ, you have it all. Stop searching for what you already have. So it means resting in that. And I think it means growing in denying myself, taking the, up the cross and following Christ. If we believe this truth, living for Jesus would come first, above everything else going on in our lives. Because Christ is supreme for me. He has come so that I can live for him. Surely such a savior who loves me so much, deserves my life, my whole, isn't it? If I truly believe this truth, it also means that I would want to have a desire to know more of this Christ who is supreme for me. It would dominate everything I do. And so if you are truly trusting in Christ who is supreme this evening, I just want to encourage you, come afresh this evening. Thank him for being supreme over all things for you. And ask him to help you grow to believe this truth every day. Amen.